Well, I thought I'd just start and, you know, just get the ball rolling while Elwing's pissing about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> are you are you ready? Not really. Oh, sorry. I should perhaps have asked whether I should start the recording or not. What are you drinking? Um, I've got a glass of water just because I'm thirsty, but also Staropramen. Oh, it's been a while since I've had any of that. I am... We've left at our flat um, about two months ago, and we only recently found it. Do you remember when you used to be here, we used to get through, I used to get through about three or four of those big bottles of that. <laughs> and then <Yeah>. I... <laughs> I'm on Argentinian Malbec. Ooh. Bursting with flavours of raspberry and plum. I should also close the door, actually. Yeah, it's a bit of a breeze in here. I'm just going to uh, pour out a little of the red wine. We went to the co-op and bought... Wine and bread. Are you going to say you went to Argentina? <laughs> no. We bought wine and bread. Oh, and I am brew. Ah. So, um, how on earth are you? Is this preamble time? Oh, I suppose so. Well, truth be told, I'm a bit shit, to be honest. Oh. I've been um, having a lot of pain due to, I think, uh, worsening of existing disabilities, but it might be a whole new thing. No yeah. idea. And might have to drop out of uni for the semester and come back once I've figured out what's going on and how to actually manage any of it, because I'm just not managing any of the coursework right now. Yeah, well, you've got us, you've got us to support and stuff. Um, the, sorry to hear that. I mean, I kind of, I kind of knew jerk chicken, courtesy of mum, but uh, was too spicy for me to actually finish. Um, really? So I'm gonna have some more of that later. <laughs> That's interesting because you're a you're a spice monster, aren't you? Really, you do you do take to spice quite well. I I suppose so. <laughs> I sent. I think that was the one that I sent a photo of when it was in the pan to Nienna because um, it looked like turds in a pan, and she'd had some turds to clean up at work from the floor. And the walls twice. <laughs> okay. Apparently, she was uh, on her break, and somebody came out of the gents and said to her, um, I, "I don't know. Um, I should be. I, I don't know what what the problem is, but there's a guy been in the cubicle for quite some time, and you can just see under the door that there's there's poo on the floor." Um, anyway, the guy came out eventually, and and when they went in to clear up, it was all smeared all over the walls as well. 
And then apparently oh, later in the same shift, somebody shat on the floor in the disabled toilet as well. <laughs> do people do that intentionally? Well, I suppose disabled toilet, you could perhaps give them the benefit of the doubt because I, I don't think it was all smeared around in there. But I mean, I'm assuming that the smearage would have been an intentional uh, activity. But Yeah, it's pretty hard to accidentally smear your shit on the walls. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I did this morning? And this is completely unrelated. Smear your although, shit on the walls. <laughs> although there might be some kind of mental connection. I um I poured orange juice into an empty cereal bowl. <laughs> I didn't realize until I saw it there and I thought that's not right. <laughs> but at least there was no cereal in it yet. Do you pour milk first on cereal usually? No, I had intended to pour it into the glass oh. that was next to the cereal bowl, but I was thinking about something else at the time. And then, uh, I'm going to have a little sip of the red wineage. Mm. Me and Mum have got a Ramesh Ranganathan stand-up show to lined up to watch afterwards on Netflix. Mm. Um, what's happening then? Uh, should we start the podcast? Or, well, you should tell me what we're doing first before. Should, should should we start the podcast and then I'll tell you what we're doing? Well, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I suppose because you introduce it, don't you? Yeah, I suppose I don't need to know. Although we don't always say what the podcast's about until like halfway through, anyway. So that's true. Okay. Anyway, I'm about to be surprised. It could be about cats. I, I doubt it. Yeah, probably not, but go on. Hello, Internet. I am Fireball. And I'm the Orbiter. And welcome Ooh, to... It's exciting. It's awesome. What are we doing? Breaking. Borders. South Africa part three. Oh shit, I better get some South Africa, is it? I better get some music yeah. going, aren't I? <laughs> I'll have to do some research while you're Profes- I can't remember how far we got. Uh I checked the last episode and we got up to uh, I think nineteen fifty where kind of apartheid started properly. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So um Actually, this is quite handy because I can be doing some research on the right-hand side of my screen and not have to look at my own ugly mug looking back at me because it's rather off-putting seeing your face. Not your face, my face, your own face, my my own face looking back at me. And uh, pardon me. Uh, I think uh, normally with these, um, we talk a little bit about the news first, but... Up to you, whoever you want to do that. Uh, well, I mean, there's the it's all the same bollocks except for um the earthquake that's happened. Oh yeah, in Turkey and Syria, um, which I think they're up to. Well, earthquakes, earthquakes, yeah, Turkey. Yeah, I think they were up to about 
30,000 or something dead. Crazy. So um, but it's going up every day. Um, obviously, they're getting killed by the cold now as well. I'm just looking up. Uh, yeah, current toll of 33,000 was, that was at quarter past four today. So, um, and they reckons, they reckon that it could double. So that's not good. Um, yeah. Well, that, that, and what can you say about that, really? Not much, to be honest. The um, thing of um, doing like model UN things was thinking about maybe having some sort of session on that, but it's sort of like no one really disagrees that it's bad, even if they don't like the governments of Turkey or Syria. Yeah, yeah. Um, um and also it's not really caused by any uh human things like sometimes fracking can cause like minor earthquakes but this was just the earth doing its thing indeed oh uh also um we are last discussion around the news uh Wales is also planning to pass a very similar law to what Scotland did that got repealed by the UK government. Oh, are the they? gender recognition thing. Okay. Um, and the Tories have also said that they're going to block that. But with it being Wales, it's probably going to be put forward by the Welsh Labour Party, which means that for Keir Starmer to backstab his own party again he would have to backstab his party on a bill that they proposed rather than just a bill that they supported yes in case for scotland uh curiouser and curiouser the plot thickens um but it would just be kind of quite disturbing democratically if uh, two of the major devolved governments, the Northern Irish Assembly, to be honest, doesn't really count because I don't know if it's assembled yet <laughs> since the no, last no. election that they had um, to not really be able to pass laws for the betterment of people because the government doesn't like it. There was the um, also the curiously suspicious timing. I, I can't see any news items nowadays without bearing in mind the current um situation and it just seemed ridiculously obvious timing when the story came out about the um the rape in the woman's women's prison yeah um i just thought i mean obviously it's a really bad thing to happen to anyone to be raped but it's like i just thought it's just so obvious what why are we hearing about this now and why are we not um why are we not being told all of the other statistics alongside it such as how much um, rape happens in male prisons and um how much sexual assault happens in female prisons and you know it's 
I mean, it's not like it, it's kind of seen as a, a joke at that whole thing about not dropping the soap, isn't it? In the showers in prison. It's kind yeah, of, well, it's kind of, I think some people, once people have committed a crime, even if it's something really minor, like possession of drugs or something like that, they just go like, well, you shouldn't have committed the crime then. You don't get human rights anymore. Yeah. Which is nonsense, but, um, Yeah, it does. It's just a bit obvious. It's a bit transparent. It's a bit obvious. That, yeah. That happened when it did. Um, and to be honest, um, you know, if the, if there, if somebody is having difficulties, um, and has some kind, any kind of mental instability and all of that stuff's going on, like politically at the time, then, Who's to say that that didn't play a part in in that happening anyway? You know, if that makes sense. I I mean I don't know when things happened, but I no, but I know it's it's been a thing for a lot of trans people just seeing the news about this stuff, like and alongside like rising hate crime figures, just being like really depressed by it and yeah some people have killed themselves mm. for that so it's just more disgusting bigotry but indeed on to a historical kind of disgusting bigotry <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. speaking of which so yes we last left off in 1950, which is when kind of the guy that basically architected apartheid was um, put into the position of um, Minister of Native Affairs um, by the National Party, which is the really racist one. Right. I think the National Party's still around, it's just they've like mellowed a bit. Um kind of by force. Yeah. Uh so following his appointment, a bunch of new laws come in, um, including classifying every South African by their race, um, suppression of communism, which basically just meant that if they if someone was against the government, they'd just call them a communist and then they could detain them. Um, segregating residential and business areas by race, um, removing people that were already in white areas, um, if they were black, colored or Indian, and uh, treating black people as sort of tribal and forcing them to live uh, in reserves, kind of similar to, I guess, um, how reservations work in, like, the US. Um, they call them townships. Was that what they called them? I think that's possibly that later. Later. Right. Um. 
but basically black people were only allowed to be living near white people if they were working for them and mm. that was kind of a temporary thing yeah um also in 1950 we have uh, south africa's uh, coal oil and gas corporation which aims to make south africa self-sufficient that will um become more relevant later when south africa kind of gets cut off from the rest of the world because they keep being really racist and also destabilizing like the neighboring countries and uh, making nukes and stuff like that where they kind of have to rely on their own energy sources because the rest of the world doesn't like them who's making nukes sorry i, I drift what were you saying about nukes? <laughs> well, well, later on, South Africa develops nu- nuclear weapons. They I haven't uh, decommissioned them now. I didn't know that. I mean, it was kind of part of why I think, particularly in like the eighties, um, uh, governments like the US and the UK even um, were calling on South Africa to calm down, basically, right. Yeah, that, I didn't know that at all. Um, that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the gist of apartheid, um, extreme inequality, separating black people as well as um, mixed race people, coloured people as they were classified, and Indian people, um, and creating just extreme poverty um which also led to lots of disease and malnutrition in the non-white areas yeah mm. um but there begins to be some resistance to this in 1952 we had the South African Indian Congress which i believe Gandhi might have been involved in um right. and the African National Congress the ANC which are I think still the main ruling political party in South Africa. Yeah. So they work together, um, organize um, to defy the discriminatory laws um, through non-violent resistance and um, burning the pass books that they were given for going through. Um, or being able to work in white areas. Yeah, that's um, that's actually uh, a good example of something of progress that's been made actually during my lifetime. In that, um, it was reminding me of the scene from the um, Richard Attenborough film Gandhi. Um, but the fact that Gandhi was played by a white actor would, just wouldn't happen, or they wouldn't get away with it now. No, it would be. Definitely frowned upon now. Mm, mm. I mean, I think that film handled some things fairly well, but just that choice in itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, weird. I mean, you know, he's a he's a brilliant actor. Who's the guy? What's his name again? Uh, Ben Kingsley. That's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't realize he was white until years after because I don't. I only really saw it first time I saw him was in Gandhi itself. 
But yeah, I mean, it's certainly something uh, Richard Attenborough wouldn't do. Is Richard Attenborough even alive? Still, sorry, that's a bit of a side side track. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I think he died shortly after starring in the Jurassic Park films. Oh yeah, um, possibly. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um. Um, we also have uh, the Bantu Education Act, um, which means that missionaries no longer run schools for black people. Yeah. Um, and instead, elementary schools are run to basically increase skills rather than um, get people into the church. Um, we have uh, so in 1955 there's a the Congress of the People uh, which holds a mass meeting this includes coloured people Indians um, uh, black people and uh, white sympathisers is that uh, a it, term that's kind of um, frowned on nowadays coloured people is that something that Generally, but this is the legal term that was used for them. So right, okay. Yeah, it, yeah. It's difficult to know how to discuss it because um, obviously that comes from a racist position of separating people yeah. by race in the first place. Yeah. Mm. Um, where he, he is dead, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> um, so they adopt a freedom charter together, and um, this says that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black or white, and no government can justify, justly claim authority unless it is based on the will of the people. Uh, this meeting gets broken up by the government. 150 people get arrested, charged with high treason, um, none are actually found guilty, but the trials drag on for um, nearly a decade. Mm. Um, Coloured people get removed from the voting role. And finally, in 1958, uh, Verwood, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, um, the guy who architects apartheid basically, um, and just becomes prime minister now. Right. Um, it becomes illegal for universities to accept black students. Um, the government instead creates specific ethnic universities for different groups of black people. How are they kind of justifying this? Because, I mean, see, that was the thing that, that, that occurs to me is that in any, you'd have thought, I don't know. You, I'm trying to imagine the kind of um, environment where this can come about and happen and be seen as okay by the majority of people, I suppose. I mean, a similar thing is happening in the US at the same time. Yeah. Um, not to the same extent or extremity, but. Um... The same logic, I think, applies, and I think it's something that we're more familiar with. 
And you'd think, especially um, so soon after the World War, the Second World War, you know, I mean, to not make that connection between racial kind of hatred, even though it's a different race, a different race that's kind of, it just seems bizarre. I mean, World War Two, although it was a factor. It wasn't really fought because of the Holocaust. Um, that was no. kind of learned afterwards. Right, okay. Which, like, the extent of to which that was going on wasn't really known even to those within Germany unless yeah. they were directly involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was mainly because Poland was invaded or, I mean, Germany was invading other countries. Yeah. Which is kind of not entirely dissimilar to the way that apartheid actually ends in South Africa, is that they start invading their neighboring countries mm. and that pisses off the rest of the world. Yeah. Um so um also, all of the ethnic college, uh, colleges are staffed by um, white people who support the government and control what students can do very strictly. So mm. they're not really there to actually educate freely. They're there to basically get people qualified to do work for white people. Yeah. Mm. Um, in 1959, Robert Sabukwe, who is a language teacher, um, basically leads a split away from the African National Congress at, to form the Pan-Africanist Congress mm. um, because he believes that the ANC's alliances with um, white, coloured and Indian organisations was obstructing the fight for black liberation. Right. Um, I think they were also, uh, especially later on, more radical in their resistance and advocated more violent resistance. Mm. Um. Lots of acts of resistance here, um, a massive strike, um, about 30,000 black people marching in Cape Town. We're around about 1960 now. Yeah. Um, so many people, or many black people ended up forced into these um, reserved homelands. Um, the government restricting how they were able to get into towns, um, making it illegal for a black person to be in a town for more than 72 hours unless they had a job in a white home or business, uh, brutally removing people. Um, and this practice continued until the early 80s. Um, and over that roughly 20 years or so, 3.5 million black people removed from towns uh, and rural lands, which they 
that their ancestors had occupied for centuries before this point. Yeah. Um, and forced into reserves, um, often in winter with no support or facilities to actually allow them to survive. Just, it's just difficult to really visualize or imagine both um, how awful that was to go through, but just what, I mean, like you said, what kind of mindset yeah. is used to justify that? Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about how recent we're talking, um, you know, like this was um, around the time that um, Nan would have been just entering adulthood. Yeah. Um, um, very, I mean, see, that, that's the thing, like, it doesn't seem to me in some ways that the world has changed that much during my lifetime, except for obvious specific things like the emergence of the internet and the, you know, the, the media revolution and stuff like that, technological stuff. But in terms of, politics yes there's been some change um but and there's also been the fall of the soviet union and general the eastern bloc yeah yeah it is bizarre to be thinking i don't feel that different but i suppose i must be <laughs> i mean and i mean these past few years especially we've been living through historical events it feels yeah true yeah yeah, I mean it's it's easier to look back and go like that was a historical event, but like with COVID and the war in Ukraine, it's like it's it's very now. Mm. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like big events such as nine eleven. At the time, they you know they're a big shock and. The commentary does recognize and and say that that it's going to change the world forever. If you like, there's going to be repercussions that, and I mean, you kind. I suppose it's not that you don't really believe that at the time, but there's so much hyperbole that comes out in the news and in the media um, whenever anything happens that you, you never quite know what that means and to what extent, but then looking back at the last sort of 20 odd years, you can really see how it has shaped our time since then. And I suppose to the same extent, things like apartheid and this, the work, the world wars and stuff. But like you said, there are things about those those events which weren't really known widely until afterwards. Um, actually, now when you think of World War II, one of the main things that you think about is the Holocaust. But to be thinking of it in terms of their contemporary mindset of like it simply being about um, a country, you know, invading its neighbours and stuff, you wonder how much can be going on within the borders of a country that people just don't know about even the people that are in that country you know 
I mean, we get like glimpses of that with Russia, where in Chechnya at least, which is kind of a semi-autonomous region controlled by Russia, um, gay people are put into concentration camps. Yeah. Or suspected gay people even. Just. Um, I just want to say we've got just over five minutes left until our first Zoom break. Um how do you want to handle the music clips? Do you want me to just chuck something in before we break? Are we at a relatively convenient time to to do a break? Uh, I, I'll just get up to um, the like a kind of big thing that happens very soon. Okay, you got five minutes. <laughs> so there's this massive rebellion in these homelands that black people are corralled into. Um, government responds by mobilizing the army, arrests around 11,000 people and outlaws both the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress. Uh, The National Party in 1960 holds a referendum on South Africa becoming a republic. Um, This is kind of related to some events that were going on in uh, Belgian Congo at the time, they wanted to foster white unity. Um, the voters uh, vote for South Africa to become a republic and um, the governor general gets replaced by a president. Um, and other Commonwealth nations um, now criticise South Africa's apartheid policies quite heavily. There's a big meeting in London for this. Um, but uh, this forces South Africa to withdraw from the Commonwealth and uh, South Africa has declared a republic in 1961. Mm. Is it funny you mentioning about Belgian Congo? It really does bring back that whole through all of the the breaking borders that we've done that the, the, the whole of the development of the world has been coloured by um, the em- empirical um, exploits of European um, colonisers, basically, isn't it? But because yeah. um, when you think of Belgium, you tend to think if somebody says about Belgium, I tend to think of them being as a bit of a kind of victims at the beginning of the world was it the first or the second world war there's a second that they got when when they got involved was it or the first i mean both um yeah but they they were very much they were quite a small kind of they seemed to be kind of victims but you don't think of them as as I mean, sort of colonizers prior to 1908 um belgian congo basically european powers just split up africa um between themselves as you yeah. do yeah. and said this is my bit this is my bit without even asking you know about hmm maybe people already live here and we shouldn't yeah. just invade them willy-nilly um mm. basically there was so much disagreement about who should get congo um that they gave it personally to the king of belgium so it wasn't even a a colony run by the Belgian government. It was run personally by him. Yeah. Uh, kind of like a corporation in a way. Yeah, um, have a country. 
Things did improve a little bit once it got handed over to the Belgian government. I mean, was it a specific entity or was it? did it become one when that land was given to... Did Congo exist as a... I mean, there was nation. a kingdom of Congo, but it wasn't right. the same geographic area. Mm. Um, the kingdom of Congo was quite big, actually. Um, yeah. But history just sort of gets erased... Anyway, are we at a, a convenient point now? Um, yeah, sure. Right, I'm going to play us out in this last minute with a bit of Hugh Masakela. I don't know if I've mentioned him before, have I? Um, one of the only um, top um, Billboard top top 100 artists to have uh, been famous for playing the flugelhorn. And here is a bit of music. I don't know if you can hear this. I'll have to drop it in if not. from Namibia and Malawi. There's a train that comes from Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a train that comes from Angola and Mozambique. From Lesotho, from Botswana, from Swaziland. From all the hinterlands of Southern and Central Africa, this train carries young and old African men who are conscripted to come and work on contract in the golden mineral mines of Johannesburg and its surrounding metropoli. 16 hours or more a day for almost no pay. Deep, deep, deep down in the belly of the earth when they are digging and drilling for that shiny, mighty, evasive stone or when they dish that mishmash mash food into their iron plates with the iron shovel or when they sit in their stinky funky filthy flea-ridden barracks and hostels they think about the loved ones they may never see again because they might already have been forcibly removed from where they last left them or wantonly murdered in the dead of night by roving and marauding gangs of no particular origin we are told they think about their lands and their herds that were taken away from them with the gun and the bomb and the tear gas and the gatling and the cannon. And when they hear that choo-choo train, a chugging and a pumping and a smoking and a pushing and a pumping, crying and a steaming and a chicken and a what? They always curse. And they curse the coal train, the coal train that brought them to Johannesburg.
Hello again. Uh, hello, that was interesting. Um, I don't know, what's the best thing to do with that music? Did you ever listen to any of that at all in the break? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, got like halfway through a YouTube video on it. All oh, right. Okay. Um, oh, pardon me. Um, okay. <laughs> just starting. Um, I'm just thinking like it, I can share the audio, but I feel like um, it might be nicer to just drop that in um, in the edit and maybe have a good couple of minutes of it because it feels a bit like sometimes when we put the the music clips on, it feels like we're not getting the, you know, we're, we're not leaving it on long enough to get a decent flavor of, because that was quite political what I was listening to. Yeah. Um, um, did you get as far as the uh, the flugelhorn solo? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, but, um, virtuosic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll do that. I'll drop that in afterwards. So we were listening to Stimela. I don't know how you pronounce it, or in brackets, the coal train. Um, yeah. I wonder if that's uh, kind of a reference to Robbie Coltrane, John John Coltrane. Who's the jazz Coltraneist saxophone? I think it's a reference to the real Coltrane. Yeah. Coltrane, so. But it's, um, I wonder, I'm just thinking, because... Uh, it's not Robbie Coltrane, he's an actor. Um, but there was a, a saxophonist called, I think, it was either Jack or John Coltrane. I think John Coltrane, but... Um, anyway, carry on while I'm quick. It, it says on the YouTube thing that um, it was released in 1999, so... Oh, I'm just reading about it. It says it's not a reference to John Coltrane. Okay, so the Johannesburg Mines. I just thought so it was quite funny. But anyway, do carry on. Sorry about that. Um, carry on. Well, it, it, looking at the comments as well, um, a lot of people talking about like their parents who worked in coal mines in South Africa. Is this on the finding, YouTube? Yeah. Um, clip right. Okay. Finding it really emotional. And yeah. Um, also, uh, I think died. Uh, the artist died maybe like ten years ago. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, giving condolences about that. And yeah, I mean, I was when I started listening to it. I was thought, you know, I I could actually really enjoy listening to this. I don't really do jazz, but I found it quite. Um, it sounded like the sort of thing that I could could get into. I, I suppose there's diff- there are lots of different kinds of jazz, isn't there? Yeah, um, but I, I, and if there's a message, I, th- I think it helps if you can clearly hear lyrics. It's like Johnny Cash. I always remember not being particularly that bothered about the style of his songs musically, but as soon as you start listening to the lyrics, um, uh, you you kind of get it. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, it kind of starts with a sort of beat poem, I guess, and then yeah. just mm. I don't know if it continues with more lyrics later, um, maybe, or um, it's just instrumental to sort of get across the emotion of that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'll put the whole track on because it's about ten minutes long. The one that I that I found, but uh, maybe the first couple of minutes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we are um, using it, I guess, for educational or critical purposes, so it's not really breaching power use. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so where were we? In the 60s somewhere. 1961. Yes. This is kind of where things get worse and worse. Okay. Um, because things start to escalate um, and any resistance is met with a stronger reaction as with any resistance to government oppression. Um, what? So, you, um, <laughs> I thought you were waiting for me to talk then, because I did the, look like I was about to. <laughs> ANC and the PAC um, sort of take on violent resistance and start, set up an armed wing. Mm. Um, including um, ANC sets up its military wing called Mkonto We Sizwe, which means Spear of the Nation, which is what Nelson Mandela um, was kind of mainly involved in. Yeah. Uh, so these detonate bombs in government buildings, um, but the government... Uh, holds all the modern weaponry so they can never really pose a real threat to the government. Um, 1961, uh, the government makes it legal for police to use violence, torture, or kill while on duty. Um, Later on, it would allow police to detain people without trial or access to a lawyer or family. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. there's a, kind of a bunch of um, laws that are called petty apartheid laws, which basically just go um, on any aspect of life. Go, um, well, this should be segregated, this should be segregated. And if a court ruled that it should be equal, a new law was made to make it segregated. Um, yeah. Uh, so 1961, um, Nelson Mandela and Robert uh, Sabukwe have been imprisoned. Um, the people sabotaging government buildings are hanged, and uh, the anti-apartheid leaders, a lot of them flee the country, um, and now Tambo uh, leads the ANC's uh, headquarters in Zambia, um, which is uh, just north of South Africa. Mm. Did I, I did I tell you I saw Nelson Mandela once? I believe you did mention it in the last episode that we did from a distance. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That comes. To, I keep finding myself saying things and thinking. I'm sure in my podcast, I keep thinking. I'm sure I said that in the last clip I recorded. But go on. <laughs> eh, you're getting old. It's it's excusable. Yeah, but it's not, it's nothing to do with my age. I've always been that forgetful. Yeah, well, it's having. You're now acting your age, I guess. <laughs> Okay, then. No, you're not. Um, 1964, the United Nations bans arms exports to South Africa. Um, 
which means that the government establishes its own arms production company. Mm. In 1966, uh, Vervard gets assassinated um, by Dmitry Tsafendas. Uh, Tsafendas is judged insane and confined to a mental institution. Yeah. Um, uh, so Vervard gets replaced by B.J. Vorster, um, who was Minister of Justice, Police and Prison. Um, he is also a white supremacist because same party, um, believing that South Africa is comprised of four racial groups, white, black, colored and Asians, with white being the only civilized one. So what, um, what, what, what did, what exactly did they classify as coloured? I think people of um, mixed parentage. Right, okay. um, Because they differentiated that. Mm, Okay. The coloured people had some more rights than um, black people, but I mean, everyone was kind of losing out on rights. Um, I mean, I, I think because of black people experiencing the worst of it, um, that's why the uh, Pan-Africanist Congress sort of broke away to try and argue specifically for black liberation because they were getting the worst of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by just- 19... 19- Sorry, sorry. Um, uh, j- well, I was just going to dr- drop into that gap. Um, I was just while we were talking, doing a little more um, looking into Hugh Masekela, and, and saw that he founded an international school of music in 1985. Um, so, and later toured with Paul Simon. So, it was very, really influential. Sorry, do carry on. <clears throat> um, by 1969. Um, the only people with the right to vote are white people. Um, previously, black and coloured people were allowed um, some representatives, um, but those were white people, but they did have a right to vote for those white people. Um, that's abolished, and um, Indian people in South Africa never had any voting rights in the first place. Um and keeping in mind that this whole time and still white people comprise about 10% of the total population. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it is a extremely minority rule. Yeah. Um, in 1972, um, Steve Biko, who you may have heard of. Um, yes, there's a brilliant film about him, actually, just called Biko. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, uh, no, um, but he found um, the Black People's Convention alongside um, Black students. Um, this preaches that Black people should be proud of their culture yeah. and this sort of gains popularity. Mm. Um, so... N- n- now in 1973, we're kind of entering another stage of anti-apartheid resistance where um, black trade unions actually play a big part in organizing strikes, um, right. which 
I mean, considering the pay difference and presumably difference in working conditions for black and white workers, um, particularly is for higher wages, improved working conditions, but I guess specifically for black people. Mm. Um, and also in 1973, the UN General Assembly denounces apartheid officially. Right. Um, which, see, there's an interesting discussion to be had here, which is, I mean, uh, particularly recently, um, there have been, well, there's a number of organizations, including Amnesty International, and um, which have called um, the situation in Israel or Israel-Palestine um, effectively apartheid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, including, um, I think Desmond Tutu um, called it uh, apartheid as well, and he was um, later on in this um, active in... Um, uh, anti-apartheid in South Africa, uh, particularly in the nineties. Yeah. Um, and in the the UN has several times tried to um, denounce or um, make some sort of ruling on uh, Israel's treatment of Palestinians, but has been often blocked. By the US from I was going to say, yeah, effectively, yeah. I don't, I don't agree with any of the. I don't know if it, this is the case in in this case, but that this principle of certain countries having vetoes on certain things, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, in this case, I think it had gotten to a point where you know they left the Commonwealth, so the UK wasn't going to protect them anymore, and. The UK, uh, the US, and France would have largely aligned themselves to the UK um, on that, and South Africa being sort of anti-communist uh, because the Soviet Union did help um, a lot of communist revolutions in Africa, mm. um, so they weren't going to support. Uh, South Africa, and I don't think China particularly cared um, either way, but uh, I'm not sure because uh, there's a weird thing with um, so there's five permanent members of the Security Council that get given a veto. That's the UK, US, France, formerly the Soviet Union, but now Russia, mm. and now it is the People's Republic of China, but formerly when the UN was actually formed, it was the Republic of China, which is only controls Taiwan. Um, and I think that changed in the 70s, but I'm not entirely sure when. But um, anyway. There's there's um, talk of, of them thinking about um, invading Taiwan, isn't there? China. I don't honestly doubt that's going to happen but the the every time they seem to be testing the water with um something it's like is this a uh a, a sort of dipping the toe in to see what 
the chances are of getting away with invading Taiwan. You know? But because I know I know there was the the weather balloon incident um, last week, and there's been a couple of um... see with that though they it's entirely plausible that it was just a weather balloon. Well, I th- I'm well, yeah. I mean, they they've said that the equipment that 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 they've recovered makes it highly likely that it was spy stuff. But then they probably would say that, wouldn't they? Um, but there's been a couple of objects shot down, one over Alaska and I think one over Canada as well now in the last day or two. Oh, right. um, I didn't hear of those. And um, it, it just seems like um, particularly Americans are very paranoid about China. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I mean, one of those countries has military bases all around the world and it isn't China. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's almost, I think, like that that kind of um, red commie threat that they used to talk about in the Cold War from Russia is now kind of targeted at China, isn't it? Yeah. kind of That kind of rhetoric. And I, I mean, you know, they do have human rights issues, obviously, but then what country doesn't <laughs> at the moment? Yeah, but it, it, I mean, it makes sense to condemn those human rights issues, but not to, you know, extrapolate that that means that it's that simple as, oh, they're just going to do all the most evil things when it's yeah. like the US also does a lot of quite bad things yeah just just out in the open <laughs> nobody dares to i mean criticize them. to be honest in terms of the i mean this is getting very off topic but in terms of like the morality of the great powers of the world not a lot has really changed since um world war one or before where I mean, countries say that they're motivated by some ideology or another or belief in freedom or whatever, but they're kind of just looking out for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it annoys me. when. Can I just, before we get too deep into anything, how far, how recent have you got with your research? Uh, well, I've, I've finished it. Uh, well, um, I got up to 2019 is the latest date. Okay. Here, because uh, that's when the last election was. The right. article I was looking at didn't really go beyond there. Uh, yeah, and I was just going to say that 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 so many Western countries harp on about this this um, amazing thing called democracy that we've supposedly got when it's not really that democratic. The, the actual system that we live under a lot of the time. We also have actually gotten to your lifetime now, so um, some of the events mentioned here, at least like towards the eighties, um, you might actually remember happening. Yeah, if they were in the news at the time. Mm. Um. Uh, so. In 1976, um, thousands of black children demonstrate against the government um, for because the government was insisting that they should be taught Afrikaans rather than English. Um, 
literal children are responded to by the government with tear gas and bullets. Yeah. I to be honest with you, I I wasn't completely aware of what was going on in the news but from what I can remember in the sort of late 70s early 80s everything seemed to be a lot more focused on the Middle East um and terrorist activity in the Middle East like roadside bombs and you know car bombs and stuff like that and um, and the IRA so like home terrorism and Middle Eastern terrorism apartheid was criticized but we never I don't remember hearing specific stories like that so much. It yeah. Was, it was just in terms of um, things like how awful it was that Queen went and played there, you know. Yeah. These kind of news bites, if you like. Um, so the reserves that had been made for um black I'm just, people just reading about this now actually that the, the the um the the rebellion 1976 isn't it yeah um so it, 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 this is in relation to disco beats um and Bakanko bands such as the Mahatala Queens. So it's talking about this ca- youthful counterculture, um, which had music as an integral part of its focus, um, that was kind of embedded in this this child rebellion, if you like. Because um, I was thinking, I know, I know it's in a completely different country. A lot of the stuff that's happening, but that whole idea of that kind of era of the sixties, you tend to think of as like flower power and the and the decade of love and hippie kind of peace kind of movement but there was a lot of stuff going on that that was a reaction to yeah and certainly in america i'm thinking like vietnam um so it's almost like the the conflict kind of it does it does seem to create a mirror kind of um movement if you like the more the more oppression happens, the more people rise up and and f- not fight, but you know, object to it and and hopefully counteract it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of difficult to know what stage of that we're going through right now. Yeah, because I mean, it's very easy to see the rise of fascism again. Um, in a number of places, um, you know, whether we're experiencing some backlash to progress or, um, things are going to get worse or things are going to get better as just people generally, their attitudes improve, even if the government's still being shit. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's an entirely new kind of global landscape, isn't it? Because there there is there is a whole kind of there is that internet thing and social media and that 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 wasn't there before. Everything was in a completely different landscape. Because um, you're talking about sort of the way that music and and um, culture was 
uh, rebelling against these powers back then, but even that would have been restricted by the, the music industry, if you like, at the time. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, people would have played music regardless of whether they were able to sell it. Yeah, yeah. Um, just for their community. Mm. Um, so uh, the government begins devolving powers to what's called Bantu stands. Mm. Um, trying to argue that this is a sort of step towards decolonization, which was happening a, a lot in other parts of Africa. We talked in our episode about Portugal. Um, because it was in the 70s that they had their um, socialist revolution, peaceful revolution against the fascist government, mm. which kind of caused... Well, uh, I mean, the wars in Angola and Mozambique, I think, kind of caused that to happen anyway. But um, so around about this time, we're seeing... Um, more decolonization across Africa. Um, and so they're trying to sort of go like, oh, well, we're doing that too. We're, we're allowing some more autonomy to black people. Um, four of, um, I think, 10 of these um, Bantu stands become independent. Um, these are Transkai, uh, Bofu, Fatswana, uh, Venda and Siski, uh, but these never receive any recognition internationally and are pretty much dependent on South Africa anyway. So it's it's limited autonomy, um, in effect, even if they officially have autonomy. Mm. Um. Uh, 1977, um, the movement that Biko founded uh, gets banned. The police kill uh, more than 500 people, including Steve Biko himself. Um, this brings a lot of international attention onto South Africa. Um, and uh, the UN Security Council um, places an embargo on any arms exports to South Africa. Um, what year did you say that was? 1977. Okay, because um, uh, you, you remember I I mentioned the film Cry Freedom. Um, that yeah. that was all about all that that happening and and a and a white reporter managing to escape with the story of what was going on. I think before Steve Biko was killed, um, but that that was that didn't come out until 1987. Yeah, um, I mean, it, things kind of continue to escalate um, up until the end from this point. Um, but yeah, information would have been very limited and... Yeah. Uh, but it is, I mean, it is generally something of at least some hope here that the world, even if they weren't that active in it, did um, look on it in horror at this. 
Um, I mean, they perhaps should have done more at the time rather than just condemning South Africa. And in a way, kind of doing it this way where South Africa gets more and more isolated, they get more and more extreme. Mm. Um, but, I mean, so the original idea of apartheid, it at least if what the article is saying, was that um, this would bring peace to South Africa, which is um, quite ironic, to be honest. Um, the leaders were unpopular. They were extremely corrupt. Um, the homelands for black people pretty much only functioned to export workers to the white areas. Um, the economy entered a recession. Um, a lot of skilled white people left South Africa um, because everything was going to shit. And um, South Africa be basically became the world's home of white supremacy, mm. um, particularly for Africa, but in general. Um, So some little bit of good news here. Uh, leadership at the National Party goes on to more urban Afrikaners um, who believe more in reform to mainly to appease the critics, um, both at home and abroad. And um, Peter W. Bofa uh, becomes prime minister. Um, which repeal his government repeals the ban on interracial sex and marriage, mm. desegregates a few things like trains, buses, hotels, and restaurants, um, stops um, skilled jobs being reserved specifically for white people, and uh, repeals uh, the past laws, uh, also allowing black trade unions to strike legally. So, so sort of the starting of reforms here, but a lot of it's still extremely shit. Yeah. Mm. A new constitution gets created. Um, this creates a new parliament for um, coloured and Indian South Africans, uh, but it also gives the prime minister more executive powers Um, where where are what what year are we in now? Again, this is nineteen seventy eight. Right. Okay. Um, the white parliament, however, could override the other parliaments whenever it really wanted to, whenever it considered it significant. Mm. Black people still couldn't vote at all. Um, residential areas were still segregated. Schools, healthcare, welfare, all segregated and if you were black, you got an inferior service or an, an inferior um, institution. And most non-white people, considering that non-white people comprise about 90% of the country, 
um, still live in poverty. Yeah. See, I, I can't speak for the general population, but I, I, obviously I can say what my experience was because um, I was seven at this time. And I didn't really become aware of any news until I started taking, uh, until I started um, current affairs lessons at school when I was in my kind of um, mid-teens. Before that, the news was something that adults watched. Um, yeah. But I don't know if that's if that was just my experience or because... I- I think that would have been fairly common. I mean, I think it's still relatively common, but um, access to social media makes it possible for younger people to get engaged with stuff and know about stuff. That 24-hour news as well, I mean, like, you know, I I don't want to... uh, This is not a rose-tinted glasses view of anything, but that idea of kids just being kids back then was... It was more just a product of the way... um, you know, there were only three channels on TV and news was basically six o'clock was the only news that you would see as a kid um, if it was on and there would usually be something else on. Um, otherwise, it'd be nine or ten o'clock after you'd gone to bed. So, you know, um, yeah, new- news was an adult's realm <laughs> at this point. Um, and I suppose even in the mid eighties for me to be starting to learn these things at school. That was the first time I really became aware of part eight was, um, was being taught about it at school. Um, well, I must've been, must've been 14, maybe 13, 14. Okay. Um, well, we're probably about to get to the, um, part that you'll be more familiar with, especially as, um, from memory, uh, Thatcher herself is mentioned, right? Uh, in her response, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, alongside Ronald Reagan. Okay, um, we've got about five minutes before the next break. If there's a convenient point coming up anytime soon, will we get as far as 1988? Do you think, or is that a bit far ahead? Uh. It's a bit far ahead, but okay. uh, I'll leave that for the next. We're, bit, we're getting to an interesting bit um, okay. soon. Uh, so, uh, Bofa's government is also kind of um, militarizes the country, mm. um, introduces um, uh, conscription for um, white men. And uh, the neighbouring countries around South Africa try and uh, stop South Africa from becoming so economically dominant, uh, but they don't really succeed in that. Um, And South Africa starts using its military to aid... um, rebels in Mozambique and um, supports a faction in the civil war in Angola. Mm. Yeah, Uh, this is starting to sound more familiar now. The military um, invades Botswana, Zimbabwe, Swaziland, now called um, Eswatini, uh, Lesotho, Mozambique, 
to try and root out the uh, African National Congress groups and any of their allies. Uh, also, at this time, South Africa still holds on to Namibia, mm. um, which it was given after the First World War. Um, the UN uh, places a mandate for them to withdraw, but they still stay there. And um, it starts testing nuclear weapons in 1979. Who, who South Africa does? Yeah. Fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, that, I suppose that was kind of overshadowed by the whole um, nuclear sort of um, hysteria in, in the 80s that was going on anyway. Everyone thought we were all going to be World War Three within a decade. Yeah, and I guess um, both of, while reforming some things kind of just made it, in a way, far more militarised, which is where things start to get even crazier. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's a good place to end off if you want to pick your next piece of music. Okay, um, well... I had been looking at, because uh, where are we now? 1979. Yeah, I've been looking at the um, the Mahatella Queens, who we I'd mentioned that, that came out of that kind of um, youth rebellion kind of movement um, that was going on. Uh, where are we? Hang on, just a second. Um <laughs> Oh no, that was it. It was the disco beats that came out of that. Sorry, um, I'm gonna choose something, and I'll message it to you f- to listen to while this while this segment's encoding. Um, in fact, I'm gonna choose yes, that person, and. Uh, I've got a minute and a half to introduce something. Sifo Hot Sticks Mabusi. So, um, but basically, um, I'm just having a read here. I'm not doing this on the hoof, honestly. Yeah, Sifo Hot Stick Mabusi became a superstar in the 1980s. Um, South African singer. He grew up in Soweto. His mother was Zulu and his father was Tswana. Um, guys start in the Afro soul group The Beaters in the mid-1970s um, after a successful tour of Zimbabwe they changed the group's name to Harari an Afro soul band which was led by Mibusi Sifo Mibusi so um, I'm going to send you a link to something by Harari we'll have a listen to that and then that is the uh, capital of Zimbabwe actually all right, okay. Well, it was also a band. Um, probably named after the city. Probably, yeah. Beaters, yeah. One of their singles here called Set Me Free, 1984. Should we have a listen to that one? I'm about to get cut off, so look for Set Me Free by Harari. Okay, I will this. Indeed. We'll have a listen to that before we start the next section. Okay. Tatty bye for now. Um, Or shall I just continue ranting until we...
was about as 80s as you can possibly get that wasn't it <laughs> yeah i thought it was 8-bit i thought it was like off of a nintendo or something <laughs> but um yeah very much of the time funky mm. Mm. i mean it, it didn't really have the same um depth or um politicalness as the last uh, musical thing, but I mean, I guess just the general title itself is um, perhaps in reference to uh, apartheid. Yeah, I mean, I think um, even uh, not just in South Africa, but I think in other countries around the world, there were references and songs being written about South Africa and apartheid around that time. I can't, I'm trying to remember the name of the band that. Um, that I, uh, Gillen was part of, I think. Um, oh, also, um, the band name is a different spelling to the capital of Zimbabwe, so it might not be. All right, good. how is it? How is the, how is the Zimbabwe one spelled? Uh, sorry. Yeah, um, did you say Zimbabwe? Yeah, with yeah. A, it's spelled with an E at the end instead of an I. Yeah, it's, um, there was, uh, an album in, September 1982, I remember that I've listened to quite a bit on uh, on my um, streaming app, um, which had South Africa um, as a song on it, on the bonus tracks re-release um, by a band called Gillen. Oh, um, the, uh, the album called Magic. And that was all very much about that sort of thing, because I was going to say when we get to 1988, there was I was going to bring up the Nelson Nelson Mandela 70th, 70th birthday tribute concert. 
we're almost there, aren't we? Uh, yep. Okay, so um, things just continue to escalate, really. Um, now the government detains people of, um, well, dissidents of all races um, and can do this under 90-day detention sentences, even if they haven't been charged with any crime. Um, there's another new constitution in 1983. Um, this kind of attempts to appease um, colored and Indian people um, to get them to stop resisting apartheid, to sort of isolate um, black people and being discriminated against so much. Mm. Um, which uh, resulted in the formation of the United Democratic Front, um, which was made of um, different community groups, which um, sort of stood in solidarity with the African National Congress, which was in exile. Um, a state of emergency gets declared in 1985 after lots of strikes, boycotts, um, and uh, attacks on uh, black police and counsellors. Uh, the government proceeds um, to campaign to eliminate all opposition to their government effectively. Yeah. Uh, this was roundabout when I would have been learning about this whole situation. I would have been 14. Probably, now. given that the next year, Thatcher and Reagan uh, face a lot of pressure uh, internationally and from within to sanction South Africa. Yeah. Um, the Commonwealth sent a mission to try and persuade the government to suspend their military action, particularly in townships, mm. uh, to release political prisoners and to um, stop destabilizing the country's neighboring South Africa. Yeah. what? When was it that Queen played there? Because this is all around um, that. Th this is the time that the pressure really started to ramp up from the international community, isn't it? Uh, I can look it up. Um, well, 1984. Talking... Okay, this was just talking about um, uh, the Queen, like Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, I mean, Roger Taylor has said since then that there, there was a mistake that they played there. Um... Yeah. Um, I mean, they probably should have known better. Um, but it, it sort of there's nothing that can be done about it now. No, I mean I think it was probably more of a statement that music is is not political, but I suppose it depends on what the concert was in terms of you know was it open to a mixed audience? I don't um, know if it would have been just because of the legal situation of segregation yeah. and. 
Well, they broke the United Nations cultural boycott um, playing a run of shows at Sun City, which is an entertainment complex in the Bantu stan of Boputatswana. Oh, so they were doing it in one of the Bantu stands, yeah. which is supposed to be one of the homelands for black people. That does recontextualize it a little bit. Yeah. Um, they said, I mean, guitarist uh, Brian May said that um, that 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 they the band is not political and they play to anybody who wants to come and listen. Um, they were fined by the British Musicians Union, um, right. and the United Nations blacklisted them um, until 1990. Um, but they they didn't make any money out of it Um, and I think they did go with the best intentions by the look of it but it's just it's a difficult one isn't it Um, it's like sport and music always fall foul of political kind of tensions when really they they I mean, you'd like to think that they can be kept separate, but nothing can really escape politics, can it? Completely. No. It, it sort of. I mean, being apolitical in itself or being neutral in itself is a political position yeah. in a way that just benefits the status quo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe if they had gone. And they were um, outwardly defying um, something like, say, for instance, if if mixed gatherings were banned at the time, that they were allowing a mixed crowd against the current kind of ruling, if you like. But I don't know whether that was the case. I think it was just a case of, you know, we're musicians. This has nothing to do with us kind of thing. Yeah. Which you can see, but like you say, that is a political stance, isn't it? Yeah. Abstaining. Um, So in response to the pressure um, for sanctions, uh, the US Congress um, passes the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act which bans any new investments and loans to South Africa and um, air travel links, um, prohibits uh, a lot of imports, and uh, many governments follow, um, or either a lot of governments were just doing this at the same time and the US was the most significant, or the US doing it kind of led the way for other governments to follow suit. I'm just going to just chip in there because I was just doing a little bit of background research there. That year was the year of the album that had I Want to Break Free on it. Hmm. Which is interesting. Do you know if that was at all related to Apartheid? Uh, I doubt it because the album was released in 1984, so they would have been working on it. no, I think it was written by John Deacon. I think it was more about um, breaking free from the kind of um, restrictions of self-imposed um, 
you know, being repressed, if you like, in any way, I suppose. I mean, especially with the music video for it, like, that makes uh, sense. Hmm. Yeah. Do continue. Um, for the next three years or so, police and soldiers patrol black townships, destroy um, camps, detain, uh, abuse, and kill thousands of black people. Uh, the army continues its activity in neighboring countries, and censorship laws are uh, used to ban. Um, any television, radio, or newspaper coverage on what the army and the police are doing. There's an interesting point I want to bring up here because you say for the next three years. Where does that take us up to? Is that 1989? Nine. Okay, so th- this is perfect timing, and and uh, this is specifically about the influence of music. And I think this comes off the back of um, obviously 1985. Live Aid happened, and I think that was a massive indication of the power of collective global unity to to make a difference on some big issue using music um but 1988 um was the uh, also referred to as freedom fest the free nelson mandela concert and i remember watching this on tv um he was still this was on his 70th birthday um, 11th of June 1988 at Wembley Stadium broadcast to 67 countries um, and funnily enough it, it's been hailed as um, an event which potentially precipitated an earlier release for Nelson Mandela than might otherwise have happened it was kind of um, hailed as a, a more political um, version of Live Aid it was a it was a, a global kind of outcry that yeah to to get him released basically and there was a repeat um two years later when it became um obvious that he was about to be released nelson mandela requested that another concert be put on in 1990 um, a repeat of the same thing where he would appear and make a speech um and that's what actually happened so yeah um, the second event was called Nelson Mandela, an international tribute for a free South Africa. Um, and that was broadcast in 1990. So, yeah, the 1988 one was the biggest and most spectacular pop political event of all time. Um, a more political version of Live Aid with the aim of raising consciousness rather than just money. And that was uh, from the music critic and presenter of the BBC broadcast, Robin Denslow. No, not heard of him, but... So, yeah, that's my musical contribution to that section. <laughs> but I do, I, no, I do remember it, and I remember being fascinated by it because it was like we were used to... We were used to famine being on the news. You know, it was all about... Uh, Live Aid was all on the back of stuff that was coming out of Ethiopia at that time. Um, yeah. And, you know, that was about raising money. But then this thing came along that it was like, what is this trying to be? Is this trying to be another Live Aid? But it's not about um, natural disaster. What is, what is actually happening here? So it was a, an awareness-raising thing, you know, although a lot of people would have been aware of it, but that was probably the first major awareness that I had of it. So it definitely widened awareness. 
Do yeah. continue. Sorry. Um. So this sort of brute force uh, was and censorship was designed to try and stop dissent, but it didn't really do that. Um, critics such as Desmond Tutu um, defied the government. Um, a lot of clerics and intellectuals reduced support from the government. Uh, black workers organized massive strikes, including a really big one by the National Union of Mine Workers. And um, saboteurs um, caused um, deaths and injuries through their actions. Um, the economy was completely fucked by the sanctions, as well as uh, the rising costs of military operations in Namibia and Angola. And in 1988, the military was suffering setbacks in Angola, uh, where they were fighting, um, well, uh, factions of the Angolan civil war, but also uh, Cuban troops, because Cuba had sent um, troops to intervene in Angola. And uh, I think alongside like Soviet troops, but um, Cuba was actually quite big in that. Um, mm. So, because of these setbacks, the government in 1990 signs accords. Um, Cuban troops are removed from Angola and Namibia, and um, Namibia sends for um, UN supervised independence um, so that they can secede from South Africa. Mm. Oh shit! Sorry, I nearly, I nearly knocked my wine over. Sorry, <laughs> with my thumb. Sorry, continue. <laughs> You're right. Yes, I'm fine. <laughs> I was nearly there. Was nearly a red wine incident. <laughs> How much have you had? <laughs> this is only my second glass. It was just you know when you just like turn around to pick something up and your hand catches it. And, Fair enough. You know, but I am a lightweight. Remember, mm, that's true. Mm. Um, so by 1990, a lot of, um, white South Africans have come to realize that there's no way to really stop black people from being involved in South African politics in the long term. Mm. Um, the government begins negotiations with Nelson Mandela, um, but Bofa is, so racist that um his own party has to force him to step down in order to do this yeah mm -hmm. um and he gets replaced by um fw de Klerk. uh de Klerk yeah. announces um radical changes to the way that the government will work and nelson mandela gets released the parliament repeals many of it uh, apartheid laws and lifts the state of emergency uh, political prisoners get freed and uh, exiles are allowed to return to South Africa. So it's almost like there the, 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 the came a tipping point by the sound of it. Yeah, where, where it was kind of the point where sanctions and pressure from within and uh, the cost of military action to just maintain that level of authority um, broke the country which does give you hope 
Um, I mean, I would say, and I don't know if this is just to do with my particular age group being the age it was when it was, but of the decades that I've learned about and lived through, I would say that the 90s were probably the most hopeful. Um, I mean, it was kind of an age of... um a lot of things unifying mm. and authoritarian things falling apart in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then 2001 happened. I mean, it it seemed quite hopeful, but uh, I mean, the events leading up to, I mean, 9-11 itself was kind of an isolated act. Yeah, but, but it, it was it was an indication of, of yeah, definitely, yeah, um, and the response to it was even bigger and shaped uh, probably the last two decades of world history. Um, so it's just suddenly struck me that even though we're at sort of nineteen ninety kind of era now. Uh, it's still over 30 years ago. <laughs> I just feel so fucking old. <laughs> what? I feel so fucking old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, even 13 years before I was born. Yeah. It's weird to think of it like that because, you know, this was when I was at college. This was when yeah. I was doing what you're doing now. Well, trying well, to do. Okay, maybe I wasn't doing it quite the same as you're doing it, but, you know, <laughs> I was at that stage. Yeah. Um, uh, so in 1991, Nelson Mandela gets elected president of the African National Congress. He works with de Klerk to draw up a new constitution um, and meets with most political organizations in South Africa to do this. Mm. We kind of get into a new era here of because, um, I mean, apartheid over, and that's obviously great, but there's still a lot of political instability even within um, black political groups. Yeah. Um, Should I ask at this point, I mean, obviously, it seems like we're relatively recent, um, so there won't be much left to go, but is there quite in-depth stuff going on for the last 30 years now for what you've um, got? Can we get another episode out of it, in other words? No. uh, No, There's... I mean, about as much detail as there were for like the 80s and the 70s for the 90s. But then after that, it kind of eases up and just goes into, oh, here was an election. Here's what this yeah, person okay. did in government. Okay. Um, but I mean, that is a fairly monumentous thing if we want to have another break now and then wrap up. Yeah, I mean... It does seem like you said that, that that there was something major going on all around the world, really, around that time, wasn't there? That was a really big turning point. 
one which we'd all have hoped maybe at the time was a sign of better than has happened since then. I mean, there mm. was a point where it seemed like um, even Russia would join NATO. Yeah, 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 the Gorbachev era. Um, I mean, Germany reunified as well. And yeah, uh, I mean, not that it was exactly hopeful the way that it happened, but Yugoslavia broke up. Yeah, true. Um, um is. It's weird because that seems like a very historical thing to me, but that that is just the well, news to you when you were. Um, well, this is the thing. Age. You say in Yugoslavia, that is that name of a country is just as much a name of a country as Switzerland to me or Hungary. You know, it's just a European country, but it doesn't exist anymore, does it? <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, and it never has in your lifetime. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I think that they still played as Yugoslavia for like some football things, maybe. Right. Okay. Because I, f- yeah, I think Montenegro, like the last remnants of that Serbia Montenegro, mm. were still around until two thousand six. But I wouldn't have known I about mean, that. Uh, just before we go on a break, uh, that 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 whole kind of um era of t- just harking back to Queen playing in South Africa. I remember seeing all the documentary on the quite big um, achievement that they had when they played on the Magic Tour in 1986 in Budapest, which at that time was behind the Iron Curtain, wasn't it? And they basically amassed all the film cameras from the country to, to film that event, and it was like... I mean, I know it's not the same as playing in South Africa, but the the act of playing in behind the Iron Curtain was kind of, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a shady kind of um, area for, from a Western perspective. It was somewhere that, you know, in the, in the 80s, I know I, I remember people saying that if you ever do go to go to Moscow, take a suitcase full of denim jeans with you because you'll be able to sell them for like 50 quid each. 50 quid a pair sort of thing, you know, because they just didn't have stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a weird thing. Um, when went to Prague with Nan's tour group, mm. uh, we went to a chocolate museum. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> that sounds ace. Because <laughs> um, Czechoslovakia, um, I mean, that's uh, another one that Czech doesn't Republic exist, is it? Or <laughs> it yeah, um, <laughs> Czech Republic or just Czechia um, now, but Czechoslovakia at the time um, kind of being, I mean, not as isolated as like the Soviet Union, but still quite isolated, uh, kind of developed its own style of chocolate, like separate from how Western chocolate was generally made, which was like more bitter. Yeah. Mm. Um, which is quite weird and interesting having like entirely different history. Cause like we're probably used to like Belgian or Swiss chocolate or yeah. I mean like some British chocolate. I think American chocolate is a bit different because they have that weird thing where they 
put the thing in that makes it taste like the milk's gone off because it used to go off. Yeah. And people mm-hmm. just got used to that. Yeah. Anyway, that's a complete tangent, but <laughs> it is. Um at which point I would like to uh recommend uh a podcast from from uh Australia called Tangent City, which is very good from the gentlemen of pop culture, which I listen to. Um and they basically just talk about all sorts of weird shit and sometimes don't even introduce their episodes until halfway through. We would never. Sounds quite familiar. <laughs> um, never scared to cross-promote stuff. Uh, no, I've got a funny feeling that that might be one of, uh, they might be one of our listeners. I have like possibly 10 to a dozen listeners of my Better Call Paul Musician's Diary podcast. I never quite know who they are, but I think they might be loyal followers of the After Dark podcast network, so they probably might listen to us. Who knows? I mean, looking on YouTube that we have about that many viewing podcasts regularly. What? What? How many, sorry? About 11 or 12. Okay. That's interesting. I can't imagine people sitting down to listen to us. But then I find myself listening to other people talking nonsense and think, yeah, I'm doing the same, really. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I went to see The Fablemans the other day, the cinema. What is The Fablemans? It's the Steven Spielberg semi autobiographical thing about his um, uh, sort of teenage years, if you like, um, and getting sort of into filmmaking which sounds really um narcissistic but actually it's really well made i mean like when i was watching it actually i'm gonna i'm gonna tell it because i know i've got at least 10 minutes left i'm gonna tell a story which i already <laughs> told you didn't i about the old people I, in the cinema I, I i don't remember this um yeah old people i might not have been listening to you well i was i was kind of the youngest one in the cinema um and there was probably about 15 to 20 people there it was mainly old couples but there was a couple down the front who um just kept talking like quite loudly um and even at one point the bloke started singing like during the film and and there was a couple couple of rows behind me where i think the woman in in that couple just sort of went shh and then like really quite out loud the bloke went shush really <laughs> and and they did they 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 stopped and they were quiet but then this is a two and a half hour film and about two and a quarter hours in the woman down the front got up to go to the loo um and when she came back a few minutes later her partner um proceeded to quite loudly update her on everything that she'd missed while she was in the loo and like catch her up with the story and so the woman behind me again went shh and the and the bloke this time they didn't shut up so the bloke this time went can you please be quiet and they got up and left they'd sat through two and a quarter hours of a two and a half hour film and they got up and left with their shopping bags I just thought, what the fuck? You would rather miss the end of the film than be humiliated by somebody else telling you to shut up. 
or just rather than shutting up <laughs> yeah there's that as well yeah so I would like to see it again, but unfortunately it's not on. I, I think it's got some Oscar nominations. I, I did think, though, during the film that that there's certain things that that I watch when I think at some point this is a masterpiece. Like, I mean, I know Steven Spielberg is a master filmmaker, but I was just like, this is kind of, this is an example of, you know, like how people study Shakespeare now um, to do with plays. You can imagine that in a, a hundred years or a couple of hundred years, people are going to do the same thing with Steven Spielberg's filmmaking because it, it was an absolute masterpiece. It was really good. Um, but, I mean, obviously not a box office hit, but, you know. Um, yeah, what's um, the... Banshees of Inner Sharon last I, night. Yeah, is it good? What did you think? I haven't seen it. It's quite slow. Yeah. Um but um I've heard mixed reviews. It's it's a bit weird to be honest. Have you seen um uh in Bruges? I was just gonna say, was it by the same filmmakers? I think so. I mean, it, it, it's the same like two main actors. Um, I have I have seen Brendan in Bruges Gleason and Colin Farrell. Yeah, I have seen in Bruges, and I remember thinking this is a bit oddball, but I'm, I really enjoyed it. It's it kind of takes that to a another level. Um, okay. I mean, it's not as it is quite weird. Is it? Would you recommend it? Because I'm always yeah. looking for to watch. Um, it's an interesting film, certainly. It's like it's okay. It, it's just it's not one of those that has a particularly satisfying ending. Because there's kind of it. I mean, if you've seen the trailers for it, it starts with this mystery of like no, I, I I must have done, but I don't really remember. Like these two lifelong friends on this. Um, uh, island off the coast of Ireland. One of them yeah. just stops wanting to talk to the other. Okay, and he's really confused as to why. Yeah. Um. Sounds a bit like Nick and Craig on a trip to Disneyland Paris. <laughs> well, I think it does say in the trailer, so this isn't too much of a spoiler. But he says that if you keep talking to me, I'm gonna cut. Of yes, one of my fingers every time with garden shears. I remembered that. I think I remember that. Yeah, he plays the fiddle, so that's quite significant. Yeah, it's it's all ringing a bell now. Yeah, yeah. No, I I do fancy giving that giving that a watch. Actually, um, yeah. Um, anyway, shall we um, precipitate the break? Uh, should I find you some music to put in the break? Or... Oh yeah, probably. Um, where are we up to now? Um, uh, nineteen ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. Okay, so I am going to look for something. Okay. Um, uh, what should we go for? The biggest star of 1990s... No, that's 1990s gospel. I like... See, 1990s, to me, was all about alternative music. 
So I am going to go for this band because it just sounds like my kind of band. And they're called the Springbok Nude Girls. <laughs> I would like to have seen them live. What's a Springbok? Are they not something to do with um, Australia? No, it's uh, it's an animal native to South Africa and perhaps some other countries, but it, okay. it's kind of like an antelope. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, they're basically an alternative rock band. Um, they introduced a new world of music to the youth of South Africa in the mid to late 1990s. Um, they have stood ex- toured extensively and they were voted the best South Africa rock band in a coal con- coal poll fucking hell poll conducted by South African radio station 5FM oh Jesus um yeah look them up and I'll I'll find you something and in Ooh. fact go listen to Blue Eyes since we've got four minutes left and this yeah. is definitely enough time to have this discussion and I forgot my point before I made it yeah. um in relation to some of the violence carried out um, by anti-apartheid um, resistance fighters or activists or mm. whatever you want to call them, um, they I mean, they would have been considered by the government at least terrorists. Mm. And I think some of their actions do fit the profile of terrorism, but it's sort of I mean, we would probably say that that is justified, right? Under the circumstances, I think so, yeah. I mean, there's, so, only, there's only so far you can go with peaceful protest, <laughs> even if you're allowed to do it. And today, there are some groups that have... Um, legitimate political aims to a certain extent um, to use violent methods at least sometimes mm. um, when faced against a government that is far more powerful than them so it's sort of it's not exactly equatable again sort of talking about Israel-Palestine here but uh, it applies in other situations too is mm. how we look at dissidence and violence, political violence being used for certain aims when in the past that has achieved um, a good end. Yeah. Mm. What? Yeah, you that? Was, was there a question? Sorry, I didn't... Not really, just sort <laughs> of throwing that out there. Yeah, I mean, I've never been one of these people that sort of, um, you know... The rebellion in Star Wars were terrorists, weren't they? You know, um, potentially those who see the figure of Jesus Christ um, as being somebody who actually existed would potentially say he was a dissident. Um, the IRA have been um, seen as freedom fighters by Americans at times um so yeah it's it's a difficult one how far do you take things but if you're 
if you're in a situation where you're willing to take those kind of acts, and it is controversial, you know, because innocent people get hurt. Um, but who bears the responsibility for that? When you allow a situation to arise where feelings are so strong on a subject that people will die and kill for a cause. Um, you know, it's not always black and white, excuse the use of those terms, but I, I prefer to, to not use the terms of good and evil that, 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 that there's terrorists and that, you know, there's bad guys and good guys. It's like, we're all here together. And if a situation arises where somebody has to use violence to get their point across, then there's a reason that, that they have felt that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of an extension of the self-defense argument for any violent action where it's like, well, you're defending others' rights, you're defending your own rights. Yeah, I mean, we're sending weapons to Ukraine for self-defense. They still kill people. Yeah, but obviously, given that they're not the aggressors, mm. we see that as justified. Yeah, but who defines who the aggressor is in any situation. <laughs> probably the winners. Yeah. So you got to wait probably till the why we don't call um, Nelson Mandela a terrorist nowadays. We're about to run out of time, so I'm going to suggest um, before the next section that you... Round 
about, round about, round about now You might see get out of here I was quite surprised that it wasn't um, uh, ladies singing. <laughs> Although one can never tell, but you know, that was quite good. They certainly weren't nude. No, well, I wasn't, I didn't look at a video, but maybe I will. <laughs> anyway, so where were we? Uh, we need to, we need to finish during this segment, don't we? Oh, yes. Uh, I think we'll manage that. I'm going to try not to tangentify too much. So, like you said, uh, kind of post-apartheid, we're getting more sort of conflict within black political groups. Um, Okay. So, in the midst of this sort of new constitution um, being drafted, um, Zulu migrant workers are um fighting with the residents of townships in the Transvaal region mm-hmm. and Zulu supporters of the ANC uh fight with members of the Encamp for Freedom Party, which is led by the chief minister of the Zulu homeland region, uh, which is uh, Mango Sufu Bufalezi. <laughs> That's easy for you to say. Uh, Mandela and de Klerk both make concessions costing them support from their um, given sides the white government wants to hold on to its power and privilege um, whereas black people had hoped to win over complete control in South Africa Mm. Um, in 1982 a referendum shows that most white voters support the negotiations uh, however, uh, people on both sides attempt to sabotage the referendum uh, through terrorism. Um, and in 1983, de Klerk and Mandela reached an agreement on South Africa's future. Uh, they together win a Nobel Peace Prize for it. 
and leaders of 18 other parties endorse the constitution, which um, would come into effect uh, after South Africa's first election under universal suffrage in 1994. Um, The constitution uh, allows all citizens over 18 to vote, um, abolishes the homeland, um, and divides South Africa into nine provinces, um, each with their own provincial government, and um, gives a number of social and political rights to how black people could regain the land that was taken from them during apartheid. Mm. Um, and the new parliament is given authority to draft a permanent constitution. Um, the ANC wins uh, about two thirds of the vote, uh, and the National Party gets around a fifth, with most of that coming from the Cape, uh, with support from mixed race and white voters. And the Encamp for Freedom Party wins most of the uh, remainder and a majority in the KwaZulu natal region. Um, and all three um, get positions in the cabinet. Nelson Mandela becomes president, and uh, de Klerk and Fabu Mbeki are his deputy presidents. What what year are we in again now? This is now um, nineteen ninety four. Right. Okay. Because this is. I just wanted to at some point drop in. I don't know if I mentioned before, but um, in the nineties, after I had. Um, left music college i spent almost a decade driving taxis um in a place called wellingborough in northamptonshire and the uh car owner who i i drove for um lived with um i I think he might have married her um the daughter of uh, a white south african couple i don't know if they were originally from there but they'd certainly lived there for most of their lives. Um, And they had presumably for whatever reason ended up coming to the UK. Now I've got a feeling based on their general attitudes that it was probably um, in response to the way the political landscape was moving around that time, because I was quite shocked by how um, the see in that town where I drove taxis, there was quite a, a large black community, and I got on really well with them. Um, you know, I, I actually found them most of the black people that I interacted with um, to be a lot more friendly than a lot of the white people um, that I interacted with in that community. Um, but I really noticed how this old white couple that had come from South Africa recently, um, spoke about black people. And it, it was quite a shock to me that they really genuinely believed that black people were bad people, that they were thieves and that they were dirty and that they were just a bad people. Uh, it, it, it was quite eye opening for me that I just didn't understand how anyone can genuinely think like that. 
but they did. And I suppose they'd yeah. lived among that. But I, was just, I remember I was just... um, uh, granddad telling me about um, when my grandma and granddad went to um, South Africa and um, being, uh, this is probably like late 2000s. I'm not entirely sure. Mm. Um, being surprised that the people that they were staying with were, I mean, there's still quite a lot of, I think, racism amongst <clears throat> white people in South Africa is just sort of a cultural remnant of apartheid. And um, it's stereotyping, I think, a, a black teenager that was like working there or working nearby. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, be careful, they might steal stuff. Yeah, it's. I mean, people get shocked by that, but I mean, you can still hear that today. Yeah, definitely. talking about um, like travelers, mm. and to a certain extent, I think it's kind of um, self-reinforcing, like almost like self-prophesying that you know, if you're going to be thought of like that because just of who you are, then what have you got to lose by living up to that? You know, and if other people think of that, think that of you, then it must be easy to think that, that they're right. If so many people think that way. I mean, it's also just that kind of discrimination makes it quite hard to make money in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is gonna, I mean, poverty is one of the, the biggest drivers of crime, isn't it? So it's kind of, I mean, it's, what always gets me when people like still bring up statistics of like uh, such and such group in people commits more crime statistically. It's like, but consider the situation that they're living in compared yeah. to another group of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like you just feel like saying, well, are you surprised? You know, would you be any different in their situation? Yeah. Um, so really in this period, you have like a sort of united national government that's designed to sort of get South Africa back on its feet and get education, housing, electricity, running water and sanitation to the black population of South Africa. Um, the ANC itself also becomes kind of more moderate um, throughout its anti-apartheid campaign. It um, used... Uh, more socialist politics, uh, but it becomes sort of more centrist in this new era and um, asks for foreign aid and investment in South Africa. Um, I'm, sorry. 19... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I have to. 
I know you're going, you're talking about some really serious stuff, but I just, I just had a response from Nick about uh, a post I'd made about his microphone looking like a treble, and we, yeah, it distracted me slightly. Please continue. <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, so in 1995, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is created. That sounds dodgy. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't think it's dissimilar to what happened after World War Two in Germany, where it sounds like it might be based on a good intention, but it sounds a bit like that kind of double think, you know, like where you get Ministry of Defense, like actually gathering weapons. I mean, I think of anything the legacy. I mean, it gets into this, this, the article that I was looking at, um, the legacy of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission among black people, at least, is that it didn't do enough. Right. So it was um, run by Desmond Tutu. I suppose history judges it. The idea was to um, basically decide whether the people who had committed human rights violations under apartheid, whether they should be given amnesty. Um, I mean, really, to to be honest, if if something with that aim, the, the, the aim of the name, if you like, truth and reconciliation, uh, were to be introduced it would it would carry more weight if it was um if the idea was suggested by a white group a white led group because it's like reconciliation it, it suggests that somebody needs to kind of admit they were in the wrong and um I mean, it was from the time of the United Government, but shortly afterwards, in 1996, the National Party left the government to form its opposition, so perhaps they didn't agree with that. Yeah. But, I mean, the National Party was the party that put in place apartheid, so, to be honest, not going to really hold their opinions in particularly high esteem, especially so soon after apartheid. Like, yeah, I think a lot of their politicians would have been from that era that were perfectly comfortable with the human rights abuses going on. Mm. I shall let you get on. Um, so, uh, also sort of going into, because there's been sort of ongoing conflicts in the Zulu natal region. Um so the Encamp for Freedom Party, which is kind of the Zulu nationalist party, I guess, um, proposes a constitution which would allow autonomy for that region. Mm. Uh, they're rejected. They refuse to um, participate in the creation of a new constitution. Um, that new constitution gets put through in 1986 as well. In 1988, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission releases five volumes of its report, uh, the first five volumes of its report. The rest get released in 2003. Uh, In this, over 7,000 people apply for amnesty, 
2,500 amnesty hearings are given and around 1,500 people are given amnesty for crimes committed under apartheid. Um, it is quite controversial. Uh, are these what- cri- are these crimes um, that were only crimes under apartheid? In other words, are we talking about crimes that were still crimes or crimes that were no longer crimes but had been when they committed them? Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, say, using a white toilet when you shouldn't have or whatever, you know? No, uh, it's more for, I, I think, uh, like police officers or military people who were actively detaining or... Um, killing or torturing black people or uh, any dissidents so so actually then the opposite way around things that would be crimes at the time you're talking about now but weren't under apartheid they were allowed under apartheid yeah. um but they were crimes against humanity so to speak yeah. but mm. it is that kind of weird thing of there is a concept in law uh i f- I think it might be habeas corpus, but I might be wrong about that, where um, if something wasn't a crime when it was committed, then you don't get prosecuted for it. But in this case, it, it, it's sort of so extreme. And this is also the case for sort of post-Holocaust trials for war crimes. It's um, a difficult one, isn't it? It's, um of you know if you were just part of an institution or if you were actively enforcing apartheid in a way that constituted a crime against humanity and th- that went beyond what just following orders you know mm. yeah if that yeah. is even a valid <clears throat> excuse i mean there's going to be things that are in a gray area with that but there will be things that are very obviously way over the line yeah like you said um so a lot of white people saw this as targeting them a lot of black people saw it as letting people get away with horrible crimes that were committed um but even depending on the the result of it um the kind of key thing is that it uncovered a lot of what was going on during that time uh, it means that we we at least knew what was happening mm. um after the fact for the most part um at least for the later period uh in 1999 uh fabu mabeki uh becomes president after elections um he campaigns on addressing poor economic and social conditions in South Africa. And in 2005, uh, Mbeki's deputy president, Jacob Zuma, is charged with corruption and fraud, which means that Mbeki dismisses him. Uh, Jacob Zuma also gets tried for rape, uh, but gets acquitted in 2006. I don't know the details of that case, whether they're um, how to really judge Jacob Zuma on that um, whether there is a high probability that he did rape someone and the acquittal 
was incorrect or whether the acquittal was reasonable. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, the corruption charges also get dropped in the same year. Uh, despite this, Jacob Zuma wins a leadership battle against Mbeki in 2007. He's again charged with corruption, fraud, and um, several more charges. Uh, all charges get dropped in, 20, uh, in 2008 on a technicality, uh, which the prosecutors promised to appeal. Uh, Mbeki gets accused of in- interfering in Zuma's trial by a uh, high court judge. The ANC forces him to resign as president. Uh, he gets succeeded by an interim president. 2009 elections put a spotlight on Zuma's corruption scandals. The prosecutors withdraw charges, though, due to evidence of misconduct when handling the case, which um, draws a lot of criticism from the opposition. It's not really clear whether Zuma was innocent, um, but this does have a big effect on the election and he becomes president. Um, uh, Zuma's presidency has a lot of economic problems, uh, long-term strikes, including in... uh, Sorry, um, in 2012, where police opened fire on um, striking miners and killed 34 people. Unemployment is still quite high, and um, many people are angry at how there's not been a lot of progress in the promises that the African National Congress has made in improving living conditions. Uh, Zuma faces scrutiny for more corruption when he claims public money for security at his private residence. Uh, This includes a swimming pool and an amphitheater for which um, he is under investigation and asked to return some of the money. He refuses to return the money, and um, this gives him quite a bad look, given uh, how much poverty a lot of South Africans are still in. Yeah. Um, in in 2013, um, Zuma even gives a speech at the memorial service for Nelson Mandela and gets booed at by the audience. Um, many people worry that the African National Congress would struggle to maintain votes. They're still quite successful in 2014. Zuma remains president. Um the official opposition is now um, the Democratic Alliance, which had formed out of the National Party, as well as the um, economic freedom fighters led by Julius Malema, who is um, a former uh, ANC Youth League president. And this is a sort of left-wing split from the African National Congress. Uh, In 2015, it's revealed that university fees would go beyond what uh, most Black students could afford, and huge student protests, uh, the biggest since apartheid erupt. Um, In response, Zuma announces that this wouldn't happen. Um, 
but these protests continue when the fears increase again in 2017. Again in 2016, Zuma is under fire for corruption uh, because of relations to the Gupta family. Uh, his family had promised uh, government portfolios to people. Uh, no, the Gupta family promised government portfolios to people. Zuma gets taken to a constitutional court and is ordered to repay the money. But again, uh, he refused and is um, said to fail to uphold the constitution because he ignored the request. Uh, he survives an impeachment motion after that. This, uh, all, the sounds, ANC... this all sounds quite familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, don't, I don't mean in terms of South Africa, it just but it sounds like the sorts of things that have been going on in the UK. I mean, this is modern <laughs> politics, really. Yeah, yeah. Where all the corruption stuff is kind of out in the open rather than behind closed doors. Yeah. Mm. Uh, this obviously has quite a bad effect on the African National Congress. They lose a lot of votes. Um, there's still like a lack of economic progress as well as just so many corruption scandals. Um, another corruption scandal starts when it uh, the Gupta family's influence on Zuma is revealed. It doesn't allege specific crimes, um, but shows that um, he did some stuff that was wrong. Um, there's a no confidence vote in Zuma, but that fails to pass. Um, the original corruption charges, I think from like 2008 or uh, 2006, um, re-emerge in uh, 2017. Um, uh, but the Supreme Court... Um, rules that the charges shouldn't have been dismissed and uh, the prosecutors reinstate 16 charges against Zuma of corruption, money laundering, racketeering and fraud in 2018. Mm. Uh, in 2017, the Constitutional Court rules that the Assembly had failed to hold Zuma accountable and orders them to establish procedures by removing the president from office. And in 2018, the ANC finally announces it will recall Zuma in the run-up to the 2019 elections. Zuma initially complains that he'd been treated unfairly, but resigns and is replaced by Cyril Ramaphosa, who I believe is the current president. Mm. Um, he becomes president of the ANC and was Zuma's deputy president. Uh, Ramaphosa has... Sorry. <laughs> You okay? That was just my charger dropping onto the floor. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> uh, Ramaphosa had a reputation for um, being a businessman as well as fighting corruption. Right. He uh, orders probes into corruption in the state companies of ESCOM and Transnet and announces... Um, a tribunal to recover public funds and stuff like that. Um, Ramaphosa does um, face some resistance from within the ANC, from those that are loyal to Zuma, 
and so is limited in what he can do. This is also sounding familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he um, embraces policies like land reform to tackle racial disparity in land ownership. Um, and the thing that Zuma's faction are pushing for, as well as the economic freedom fighters, the more left-wing um, sort of split away, um, is for land expropriation uh, without compensation uh, to be redistributed to Black South Africans. So basically, if um, land had been taken under apartheid from a Black family, and given to, say, white farmers, um, the new policy would be to... I mean, previously, they would have um, returned lands to the original owners, um, but compensated the white family. And so now it's a relatively controversial thing. I don't know how you would feel about it, of um, taking land from the white farmers that had been taken under apartheid, but um, yeah, doing it's... it without compensating the family that, I mean, it's hard to know whether the people like currently owning it did wrong by that. If it was just like, they owned That's it the in thing. the past. It, it's a difficult one that, because I mean, like it is, it is getting into that territory of should I be held responsible for my ancestors' crimes? I mean, not necessarily responsible, but should you benefit? Yeah, that's the that's the other side of the coin. Um, it's not like you're being charged with a crime, but you are potentially losing your home if, if, if it's all mm. you've ever known. Yeah, and mm. even if that was acquired um through dubious means it's one of those one of those i think that's one of those issues that i <laughs> maybe take that political stance that we were talking about earlier because it's kind of i i don't i just don't know what the what the right answer to that is um I mean, there's being neutral and or just apolitical to something and admitting that you don't know are different things. I think. But it's sort of, if you admit that you don't know, then that kind of comes with responsibility to learn. I think some, some element of redistribution um, has to occur, but I think it also has to be recognised that um some people that that some people are gonna compromise i think mm. is is the only way because one way or another someone is going to gain someone's going to lose out but unless there is specific blame then i i don't see how it, how it can be justice i mean I suppose every situation is going to be different, isn't it? But yeah, it's a very difficult one. That um, we've got nine and a half minutes left. 
The last elections occurred in 2019. The ANC won a majority again, but by the narrowest margin since the party came to power in the 90s. Um, also, uh, Ramaphosa's new cabinet, I don't know if this is still the current cabinet or whether there's been elections since 2019. I will check that after this. Um, this is the first gender balanced cabinet in South African history. Right. Um, now, right up to near enough to the present um, without getting too into current political issues of South Africa. Um, South Africa still faces economic instability and racial disparity. The ANC is fraught with um, corruption scandals and it's quite possible power could change hands in the near future. Uh, but as far as I know, Cyril Ramaphosa is um, still uh, president. Right. Okay. And we'll just check if there have been elections since 2019. And I will attempt in vain to cover the dead air. Well, you do that um, with something. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking for a way to, because obviously this is the end of the South Africa era, <laughs> which has lasted a lot longer than we expected it to. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, 2019 was the last election. Okay. With the ANC getting 230 seats, the Democratic Alliance, which sort of came out of the National Party, although their leader is currently a black man, um, with 84 seats, and uh, the Economic Freedom Fighters, the sort of left-wing party, uh, with 44 seats. And then there's also like the Encamp for Freedom Party. Um, Freedom Front Plus, which looks quite white to be honest um and i don't know what this is african christian democratic party uh getting a few seats each right okay anyway and that concludes south africa broadly um there's probably some more up-to-date information on its present-day politics, but I can't be fucked. Okay. So um, thank you extremely much for your research, in-depth research, which has finally been brought to its conclusion <laughs> after must have been over a year of releasing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I guess now we'll... Uh, probably do breaking bollocks for a bit um, yeah. until I finish research on the next thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, which, unless you have any objections to it and would particularly like to do a different country, uh, would be Thailand. Oh, it could be interesting. Yeah, okay. Cool. Um, which, um, given that we were saying about um, how kind of the theme that runs through all of these is just the huge influence of colonialism, um, Thailand is quite... Um, special in being one of the few countries that was never really properly colonized by any oh, European interesting, power, at least. 
and mm-hmm. uh, didn't create an empire of its own like Japan. Okay, well, and and because we've only got just over five minutes left on the Zoom session, um, in um, anticipation of having some post bollocks, um, I'm just gonna say uh, I was thinking I'll finish off the episode by dropping in something that we had on an earlier episode, actually from South Africa, um, which was a clip from the end of the Cry Freedom film, um, which. Uh, the soundtrack was English composer Fenton. Uh, what's his name? Uh, somebody, Fenton. George Fenton. Yeah, um, collaborated with uh, a South African musician, uh, Jonas Gwangwa, um, who was a South African jazz musician. It, this George Fenton had had previously worked on the soundtrack for Gandhi and um, had deliberately worked with an Indian composer and instrumentalist Ravi Shankar to get an authentic, ethnically authentic score for Gandhi. But he did the same again with Cry Freedom and worked with a South African jazz musician, um, Jonas Gwangwa, um, who had been an important figure in South African jazz for over 20 years previously and who was the leader of Amandla, the cultural ensemble of the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's political party. So the resulting score was about as authentic a representation of South African traditional music as one could ever find in a film, which blended Fenton's contemporary dramatic orchestral writing with the tribal rhythms and vocals of the Hosa people to whom Steve Biko belonged. So, um, yeah, this was the clip, and I'll probably drop in the, if for those of you that are on YouTube, I'll probably drop in the actual video, um, the clip at the end of the Cry Freedom film, which um, is quite moving, that lists the... Deaths in police custody. Um, if you get a chance, I'd highly recommend that film. It w- it came out in 1987, so um, it is sp- especially moving because quite often at the end of these films that are based on re- uh, real stories, true life stories, um, they finish with a caption um, which gives the current state of affairs. And obviously, being 1987, this was prior to the end of apartheid but it was when the pressure was really ramping up it was before nelson mandela was released um so yeah that's what i'll finish off with um so shall we finish Um, the episode yeah sure but um yeah we have covered um technically i think about three million years of history um although briefly on the earlier parts of that um Talking about the origins of humanity itself, going to oh, I have to go back and listen to those. <laughs> um, it's been a while. The early peoples of South Africa, Bantu people migrating to South Africa, to European contact and the foundation of the Cape Colony, to increasing control and expansion of um, Dutch and English settlements. Uh, yeah to the world wars and then the uh horrors of apartheid and then finally to how apartheid ended and how south africa's kind of while apartheid has ended not really in the best of situations still economically or politically with a lot of corruption still rampant and inequality okay um i'm going to suggest actually based on um just 
purely out of respect that rather than having some post bollocks that we maybe just finish off with that piece of music that was often I'm not sure if it is a South African national anthem but it was Ladysmith Black Mambazo I think that perform it but it, I just I don't feel that the the flippant nature of our post bollocks is really a fitting end to South Africa's outing if you like so um shall we take the opportunity to say a proper goodbye before our zoom session runs out and uh because it just says less than a minute from this point so i have no idea when it's going to cut out (laughs) okay anyway i have been firebolt and i've been the orbiter and this has been south africa part three um episode uh I think seven of Breaking Borders of Rule. Okay. Uh, we'll probably go to Breaking Bollocks for a little bit after that, but I, I will get Thailand research started. Cool. And we will see you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.
This podcast is part of the After Dark Podcast Network.